I want to continue from last week. I appreciate the comments that I had last week from both services, the message out of Colossians chapter 3. I want to remind you, if you're of a mind to do so, you can go online, the church website, and you can listen to the messages from the week before if you missed. Uh, today's message dovetails very nicely into last week's picks up where we were. Uh, I want to talk to you this morning on the subject matter, do you have a Christian wardrobe? I want to talk to you about that subject matter. Do you have a Christian wardrobe from Colossians chapter 3 and beginning in verse 12? So I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Colossians 3 verses 12 to 17, Paul says... Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive." And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Lord, we thank you for these words challenging your people about the Christian life. Lord, we know that as believers, there is to be a difference in us. We are to be distinct from the world. We're not to blend in. We cannot be salt and light in this culture if we are just like this culture. So Lord, as your people, help us to reflect the salvation that you've given us. Remembering the words in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, behold, the new has come. God, help us to walk in that newness. So challenge us, convict us, and encourage us from these words this morning from the Apostle Paul out of Colossians 3. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. One of the greatest short stories of all times would surely have to be that short story written by Hans Christian Andersen entitled, The Emperor Has New Clothes. Now, most of us think the title is The Emperor Has No Clothes. And of course, that's the point of the story. But the title is The Emperor Has New Clothes. 
It is a short story that Hans Christian Andersen wrote back in 1837 from Copenhagen. Andersen's manuscript, it said, was at the printer's shop, ready to be printed and go out to the public, when suddenly Hans Andersen changed the ending, the entire ending of the story. You see, originally the climax to the story was that the emperor's subjects were simply admiring his new clothing. But Anderson changed the ending to that of a child in the crowd who suddenly cries out. Now some literary scholars have concluded that the ending which has endured through time was a deliberate stab at the hypocrisy and the snobbery of the socially elite that Anderson faced when he himself was just a child and was growing up trying to break into certain elite circles. He was snubbed by the socially elite adults. And so in his story, it is the cry of a child that finally exposes everyone's hypocrisy. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, it's only about three and a half pages long. It's, It's a quick read. I encourage you to read it. It's about a vain emperor who cares nothing about anything except his wardrobe. He is so vain and loves his wardrobe, his fancy wardrobe, so much, it's said in the story that even hourly he would change out his clothing just to show off his new attire. Well, he hires two weavers who are nothing more than con men. And they convince the proud emperor that they can make for him the finest clothing ever. They convince him that the clothing that they make for him will be so fine and so exquisite that only the most worthy eyes can even see it. If you can't see the clothing, it's only because you are unfit, you are unworthy, and you are incompetent. Well, the emperor hires them. These con men pretend to weave this new wardrobe. Of course, they're taking all the fine silk that he provides for them and the gold threads and they're stuffing them into their knapsacks so they can make off with it and make money from that too. But, but here they are, they're having uh, this these these looms set up and they're pretending daily and late into the night to be weaving this fine clothing. And then they have the emperor come in for a fitting. And they pretend to fit him with these new clothes. Now, of course, there's nothing there. The emperor is standing there in nothing but his undergarments. But the emperor doesn't dare say anything fearing that if he does it will only prove that he is unfit and unworthy and incompetent. Well the day comes that the emperor is to parade his new clothing publicly through the streets to his subjects. He does so rather proudly as he marches before the shocked and surprised 
eyes of the crowd. But no one dares to say anything fearing again that they will be labeled as unfit, unworthy, and incompetent. Finally a child in the crowd shouts out, The emperor has no clothes on. And for a moment all the air, the the oxygen is sucked out of the air. But then the crowd also picks up the chant. The emperor has no clothes. Now folks, as I read that story again, I I thought about the Apostle Paul's words here in Colossians 3. Paul's point, of course, is not that the emperor has no clothes, but rather that oftentimes Christians are, are adorned with the wrong clothing. That's why he says, beginning what he does in verse 5, using a clothing analogy of, of taking off and putting on, that we are to take off such things as immorality, impurity, evil desires, anger, rage, malice, slander, gossip, lies, and filthy language. Now obviously it's not an exhaustive list that he's trying to give here, but he's talking about the wardrobe of a lost man. And even the temptation for a saved man is that he can sometimes go back into the old closet and pull out some of the clothes from his old wardrobe. We need to be reminded that as saved men and women we have a new nature. Now yes, we continue to do battle with the old nature. And so daily we have to take off the old clothing and then as he says here beginning in verse 12 there is a new clothing that we've got to put on. He says clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience bearing with each other and forgiving one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone forgive even as the Lord forgave you and over all of these virtues Put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now folks, by the thought here of taking off and putting on, he's describing actions that you and I have to do. We know in the flesh this would be difficult. It would even be impossible. But we know that we don't rely upon the strength of the flesh. Rather, we rely upon the presence and power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now such lists like this are not uncommon in the Apostle Paul's writings. Probably the most famous list is that found in Galatians chapter 5 where he is contrasting the deeds of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. He says there, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these two are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, divisions, dissensions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit 
inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, folks, in these various lists that we find in Paul's letters, what is it that we see? What is it that we learn? We learn that the Christian lifestyle, the Christian wardrobe, is to be different. Now, what about your life? What about your wardrobe? Are you walking around in the lost man's wardrobe or do you walk around displaying a Christian wardrobe? What is it that people would see about your life? What is the testimony of your life saying? Folks, the consistent witness of the scripture is that from the moment of our new birth, we are a new creation in Christ. But that certainly doesn't mean that we always demonstrate this new life. But as we grow in Christ, as we spend time in God's word and in prayer and in fellowship with other believers, gradually over time we grow and our wardrobe changes. Now the pace or the rate is different for different people. Some Christians see an overnight change about everything in their lives. Some Christians demonstrate an overnight change in some areas, but they continue to struggle for weeks and months and maybe even years with other aspects. But the truth is the same regardless. The truth is you and I are to look different. Now let's see how Paul develops that here. First of all this morning from verses 12 to 14 I want you to see a Christian's clothing. A Christian's clothing. He says put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Bearing with one another If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now these verses right here are a very natural outgrowth to what we covered last week from verses 1 to 4. Last week we saw that we are to have a new perspective. Paul says there, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You and I are to live with a new perspective. Well, if we live with a new perspective, it's going to mean that we live with a new wardrobe that reflects that. Now before we get into the individual pieces of the wardrobe here that he mentions I want to cover something very important I want want you to see the motivation of why we are to obey these verses at the very beginning of verse 12 he says put on then as God's chosen ones if you are in Christ Jesus you are God's chosen 
All through the Bible we see that God has a people, His chosen, His remnant. We go all the way back to Genesis 12 and see this. When God chose Abraham and He called Abraham out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans and He was taking Abraham to a new place and in that new place He said He was going to make a new people out of Abraham. And then Abraham's descendants, we see God's choosing of them. Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. We go into the book of Exodus and we see God hearing the cries of His people and He preserves the life of Moses who as a baby is hidden in the water in a basket. Well, we see God working in the lives of those chosen people in Egypt. They were in the midst of a pagan land and yet God was working in them and He called them out of Egypt. He led them through the wilderness, led them into their own land. And over and over again, God reminded them that they were His people. They were His beloved. They were His chosen. Because of that, they were to be different. God said, I'm not doing this in you because you're better than the other nations or because you're more numerous, because you're not. In fact, you're the least of all peoples. But I'm doing this simply because of my grace. In the New Testament, we see the arrival, the continuance of God's plan of redemption in His chosen people. We see the arrival of the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. God's promises continue through Christ and all those who come to faith in Christ. In Galatians 6.16, Paul refers to those in Christ as the new Israel of God. And so whereas in the Old Covenant, God's chosen were mainly made up of the Hebrews, in the New Covenant, God broadens it out to include not only Jews, but also Gentiles. The point is, we are God's chosen people. And God is working for the redemption of His people with the ultimate goal that His people will be with Him one day in a new place that the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. The biblical narrative begins in a garden and it ends in a garden. And the second garden will be eternal. It'll be a place where sin and Satan can never ever enter in again. I love what Dr. Vance Havner used to say. He said, I'm so thankful there's no sin and Satan in the first two chapters of the Bible. And there's no sin and Satan in the last two chapters of the Bible. Now why do I emphasize this? Because when you think about a new wardrobe that you are to wear, it only makes sense when you think about the fact that you are a new people. You're God's chosen people. You would expect our lives to look differently because we have a brand new status before God. He says here in verse 12, you and I are to be holy 
I think of Simon Peter's wonderful words along this same regard in 1 Peter 2 where Peter takes words originally intended for Israel in Exodus 12 when they were standing at the base of the mountain but Peter now applies these same words to the church. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So again, as God's chosen, we're to put on a new wardrobe. Now let's start the list. What's he mean by that new wardrobe? First of all, he says here that we are to clothe ourselves or, or we are to put on compassion. The word compassion here literally refers to bowels of mercy as the King James Version puts it. You see, folks, in in the ancient world, the bowels, not the heart, but the bowels were associated with being the seat of emotions. Compassion here refers to a love that is characterized by empathy and mercy. It is a love filled with a deep-seated mercy. Folks, remember, these are attitudes and actions that we are to show to other people. And with the idea of clothing, the idea is of consistency. You walk around every day consistently in clothing. Or at least I hope you do. I hope, I hope there's not some days you get up and go out the door to work or school and don't have a clothing on. No. Consistently, day by day, you wear garments. Well, consistently, he says, we are to put on compassion. The second word he uses is kindness. In contrast to being harsh with people, we're to be kind. Are you kind? Do you think of other people? You know, there's not a lot of kindness in the world today, is there? You can be driving along, for instance, and you you can need to get over in the other lane. And there can be a gap. You put on your turn signal and, and... All of a sudden you see what the other person in the lane does, right? Instead of letting you over, what do they do? They speed up to close the gap. As a Christian, putting on kindness, I'm trying to get in the habit of I'll back off and I'll let that person in. It's a challenge sometimes. I'm I'm a very aggressive driver, but I'm trying to be more kind to people when I'm traveling on the road. How about when the person is in the grocery store line or Walmart line in front of you and there's a long line and this person is checking out and they get up there and they're not ready to check out. And they're rummaging through something or they're sending somebody in their family back to the aisles to pick up something else. I mean, it just drives you crazy, doesn't it? (laughs) I can tell by laughing you've witnessed this. You've been there and done that. Well, instead of yelling at them, (laughs) show a little kindness. Kindness. Then the third word he uses here is humility. Humility. 
Now, do you realize in the ancient world, humility was viewed from a very negative perspective? To be humble was seen as being weak and cowardly. It took Christianity and the New Testament writers to elevate this word to a virtue instead of a vice. Now what is humility based upon? It is based upon the incarnation. Turn with me. Let me show you what I mean. Turn with me back just a few pages to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, look at what the Apostle Paul says there, beginning in verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Think about what Christ did in the incarnation. He left the palaces of heaven to come to a sin-stained world. He humbled himself for your sake and my sake. And Paul also in Philippians 2 is using Christ's incarnation as a basis, a foundation of why you and I need to show humility towards one another. Back in verse 3 of Philippians 2, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And again, he goes on, beginning in verse 5, to give Jesus as the ultimate illustration of what humility looks like and the foundation and basis of humility. The incarnation. The next word that he gives, meekness or gentleness as some translations put it, are you harsh with people? Are you gruff with people? Well, look at this word. Meekness. Gentleness. Let that word sink in a minute. Gentleness. Clothe yourself with gentleness. You know, even when you say the word gentleness, it's, it's almost like you want to slow down a little bit and get softer, right? Gentleness. A softness with people. A meekness. Then he says patience. Clothe yourself with patience. Folks, do you realize that according to 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9, if God were not patient with you, you wouldn't have even been saved. How long in your life did God tolerate things? Before you came to save in faith in Him. Think about what we do sometimes with people. Somebody does one or two things we don't like and we write them off. Are you kidding me? One or two things? God was patient with you and me through thousands and thousands and thousands of transgressions. 
I think of an illustration Dr. D. James Kennedy gave in his course, Evangelism Explosion. He gave the illustration, he said, you take somebody who commits only one sin a day. If you could take somebody who in, in, in thoughts and in motives and words and actions only committed one sin a day, what would you say about such a person? You would say, that person's a saint. He said, but you take one sin a day over the course of an average lifespan and you have more than 30,000 transgressions. And James Kennedy said, could you imagine standing before an earthly judge guilty of more than 30,000 transgressions against the law while he would throw the book at you? And he should. Think of the person making a deathbed confession like the thief on the cross. More than 30,000 transgressions forgiven, wiped out. You know what that is, folks? That's God's patience. And so you're going to be done with somebody when they do you wrong maybe two or three times. Really? You sure about that? He goes on to clarify it even more. He says, bearing with one another and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. And he's still not done clarifying it. He goes on to say, even as the Lord forgave you. Wow. I am to bear with others and I am to forgive others even as Jesus did so with me. Now folks, the words bearing with one another and forgiving one another imply that the other person doesn't deserve it. It is an act of grace. If they deserved it, there would be nothing really to forgive. Forgiveness implies that they don't deserve it. And the words also imply that there is a genuine grievance of some kind. Again, if there wasn't something at least perceived to be a genuine grievance forgiveness would not even be needed forgiving someone and bearing with someone has no meaning whatsoever in context where there is nothing to forgive forgiveness only has meaning where there is a context where it's needed also, there's the understanding that, that in, in a Christian family, in a church family, in your own family, wherever brothers and sisters in Christ gather together in corporate life, guess what? At some time or another over time, there will be grievances. Your family get-togethers at the holidays. Your Sunday school class, what, guess what? Over time, somebody is going to offend somebody. That's just corporate life together. It's going to happen. And so again, in those contexts, bear with one another and forgive one another, even as Christ forgave you. You remember that story in Matthew 18 where Jesus illustrated this. Jesus told a parable because they wanted to have a bookkeeper's mentality. Lord, how many times did I forgive somebody? Seven times or seven times, 70? How many times? Jesus told a story about a guy who owed his master 
Scholars say in, mono, in today's monetary values, the Greek word used would be the equivalent to $20 million. And he has squandered that away or stolen it or mismanaged it. Whatever the case, he's lost $20 million of his master's funds. And the master calls him in for an accounting. And he throws himself on the goodwill and the mercy and the grace of the master. Begs for forgiveness. And the master writes the whole debt off. That's a picture of God, you and God. You have a debt owed to God, there's no way you could pay it back. Impossible to pay off your debt that you owe to God, your transgressions. That's the beauty of grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. But here's the same guy in this story Jesus told. He's just been forgiven this magnitude he could never repay. He goes out and finds one of his fellow servants who owes him $20. He's just been forgiven $20 million himself. And yet he cannot find it in his heart to forgive the guy that owes him a mere 20 bucks. And Jesus' point is, he closes out that story. If you can't forgive, if you can't let go of grudges, guess what it means? Read the story in Matthew 18 for yourself. It means that you're not even saved. Because you don't have the heart of the Father. There's no family likeness. If there's no family likeness, it's because you don't belong to him. Whatever anybody's done against us is minor compared to what we've done against God. Now look at verse 14. He points out in verse 14. He says, and above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is like the super glue that holds everything together in relationships. Why would you be patient with somebody? Why would you bear with somebody? Why would you forgive somebody? Why would you show gentleness and kindness? Because of love. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. It points out that without love, everything we do is nothing. Whatever your gifts are, whatever your actions, if they're not done out of love, if they're not governed by love, it counts for nothing. And so above all, put on love. Well, after describing Christian clothing, he moves on next to talk about a Christian's mindset. Look at verse 15. He says in verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. He's saying there's to be a guiding principle governing your life. The peace of Christ is to rule in your hearts. That means that the peace of Christ isn't simply to have a little bit of influence, a smidgen amount of influence over your life. It is to govern your life. It is to rule. Now it's such a blessing 
to study how peace is used in the New Testament. Bear with me a moment because I think what I'm about to say will have tremendous impact on what Paul's saying here about our mindset. The most important kind of peace that you and I can have, first of all, is what? Peace with God. Peace with God. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, Unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. When a man is born again, his status before God changes. A man who's born again is now in a status of being at peace with God. You see, as Romans 1, 1, 2, and 3 points out, before we were saved, Jew and Gentile alike, he says, were, were not enjoying peace with God. Instead, we were under the wrath of God. But then through Christ, through what he's done on the cross for us, our status changes. Christ bore God's wrath against sin and against us. He bore all of that that we might bear his righteousness. He died in our place for our sin. And so Romans 5 goes on to say, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said back in Colossians 1, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Having made peace through the blood of His cross. And so through faith in Jesus Christ, you go from a status of being God's enemy under his wrath to a child of God who can cry out, Abba, Father, and you have a new status of peace with God. Well, having peace with God, you can now enjoy the peace of God. Hebrews 13.20 reminds us that God is a God of peace. As we walk in His Spirit, we enjoy His peace. If you go out and pursue peace on your own, it's going to be elusive. You're going to come up empty-handed because Jesus said in the world, you're going to have tribulation. The reason why most people never find peace is because they're pursuing peace. What they need to do is pursue Jesus because if you get Jesus, you get peace because he's the prince of peace. And when you are at peace with God and you have the peace of God, it makes a tremendous difference in the corporate life of the church, right? Because those who have peace with God enjoy the peace of God, they display that to others around them. Again, you contrast it with verse 5. The, the world's wardrobe. You have people walking around in the world's wardrobe. What happens when people are clothed with immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech and, and lies? What happens when a group of people have the wardrobe of the world on? You look at what's happening among them corporately and you have anything but peace. 
you have hatred and division. But as we grow up in Christ and clothe ourselves with a Christian wardrobe where we are gentle and patient and kind and bear with one another and forgive one another as God has forgiven us, there is peace in our hearts and there is peace that flows out of us to those around us. And so a Christian wardrobe coupled with a Christian mindset, you put them both together and what do you have? You have peace in the body. As verse 15 closes, he talks again in this letter about gratitude and the responsibility that we have to be thankful. You see, all of this that he's writing about is because of what God has done for us in Christ. God has taken a lost people who had no hope, no future, no peace... He's adopted us into his family and given us a great inheritance, canceled out all of our debt at the cross, and washed us clean by the blood of Jesus. Well, folks, we now have the responsibility as his children to think and act differently. It takes work. It takes attention. But the change he works in us individually also changes who we are corporately and that becomes a beautiful witness to a watching world this mindset is even to be seen in our worship look at verse 16 let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom uh, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God that verse should be seen in its corporate context We think of individually letting the Word of God dwell in us richly and certainly that's true but that's not what Paul has in mind here. What Paul is doing here is making a statement about our corporate worship together. And the modern day church would do well to abide by verse 16. You see in a day where people have turned worship into just about anything we need to pay attention to verse 16. He's stating that our worship is to be word-centered and it is to focus on Jesus Christ. And if we turn it into something other than that, all we have done is created for ourselves golden calves like the children of Israel did in the wilderness. Our worship is to be focused on the word of God and it is to be focused on magnifying Jesus Christ. The word of Christ is to dwell in us richly and we are to express our love and focus on Him as we sing all kinds of various songs. Our worship is to be about Jesus. And we can certainly say that it's Trinitarian too because he speaks here in verse 16 uh, about the, the message of Christ Songs from the Spirit and singing to God. And so we could say that redemption is God's plan carried out by Christ and applied by the Spirit. And so in our worship we magnify God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And again he speaks of gratitude. 
We worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with grateful hearts. This is to be our mindset as we gather together. Now, I love the way this passage closes in verse 17. Because in verse 16, he's just pointed out what our corporate worship is to be like. But don't miss what he's saying here in verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He's pointed out here that everything about our lives is an act of worship. When we gather here corporately, the word of Christ is to dwell in us richly and would magnify Christ. When we leave here, everything we do throughout the week, word, deed, everything we do is to be done in the name of Jesus Christ. That too is an extension of our worship. All of life, all of the Christian's life is to be an act of worship. What that means is when you gather together this week with an office party. Let's say you have an office party. Let's say tonight at a Super Bowl party in a Sunday school class. and Maybe the conversation turns to gossip or slander. Can that gossip be presented to God as an act of worship? Can that gossip or that slander be presented to God as an act of worship? Of course not. Then don't do it. Don't engage in it. All of life is to be worship. Every bit of it. That's how a Christian is to live with that kind of mindset. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me, please. As you do so this morning, I want you to take a good long look at your wardrobe. Is it a Christian wardrobe? Or are you walking around in the filthy and grimy clothes stained with sin? I think of that great hymn. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Do you need to come to Christ for the first time in your life understanding your guilt and sin and your condition apart from Him? If so, come to Him. Don't delay. Maybe you know that you're saved, but as you have lived in this world, you've allowed yourself to go back into the old closet and pull out some of that old clothing by God's grace throw those old clothes aside and be clothed with garments that are befitting who you are you are a child of the king of kings and lord of lords in your mindset let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts as you come to worship Focus on Christ in your daily life. Live like everything you do is to be presented to God as an act of worship. Lord, may it be so in our lives when the world looks at us. May they see the difference. 
And Lord, out of that difference they see, we're going to be able to share the testimony as to why. Lord, empower us, strengthen us, help us. Help us to be clothed with those things that speak of who we are in Christ. For it's in His name that we pray.